reading. And then we'll do questions 39 through 44 as our catechism lesson. In the back of the red hymnal, that's page 872, 39 through 44. We will make brief mention of Psalm 19 in the sermon, but really what we'll be focusing on as the text is the preface to the Ten Commandments. And that's named for us in the catechism lesson. But Psalm 19 will function as a a bit of a reference for a couple other points that we make. Psalm 19, a proper scripture to read after that song that we sung, those words from Psalm 119, but Psalm 19 highlights many of the same things. So Psalm 19, here now the reading of God's holy word, as it is read in the presence of his people, he gives it to us for our good. Psalm 19, for the director of music, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors, forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins, may they, may they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Catechism lesson, beginning in question 39. Let's read the answers together with one voice. This is 872, back the red hymnal. As we move to a new section of the catechism here, question 39. What is the duty which God requireth of man? The duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. Wherein is the moral law summarily comprehended? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? The sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, 
and our neighbor as ourselves. What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? The preface to the Ten Commandments is in these words. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. What doth the preface to the Ten Commandments teach us? The preface to the Ten Commandments teacheth us that because God is the Lord and our God and Redeemer, therefore we are bound to keep all His commandments. As I mentioned, our text that we will use is there, verse 2 of Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We think also of a bit of a New Testament twin of that verse, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. As I mentioned, we're beginning a new section of this catechism, and we refer back to the beginning of the catechism where it says, or it asks, what do the scriptures principally teach? And, and they principally teach two things, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. We have just finished one of the larger sections of what we are to believe concerning God. We had God and the scriptures and redemption uh, through Christ and then many of the benefits that Christians receive in this life to be justified, forgiven of sin, to be sanctified, conformed to the image of Christ. Last week we talked about the benefits uh, uh, that accrue to the Christian on the day of the resurrection. It was certainly a wonderful, holistic look at, uh, at the Christian life. So now we consider what is the duty that God requires of man? What does God require us to do? How does he require us to live? But really, you have to notice that to say, even that you believe that there is a duty which God requires of man, which is objective, which hangs above all of the human race, to say that you believe that is to say something that in many ways cuts against the grain of the way most people think, particularly in the Western world. There's... Uh, one sociologist who did a lot of research in this, and he interviewed um, many, many young people from all different walks of life and religious backgrounds, Christian, certainly, this is Western young people, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, otherwise. Uh, he found that when he asked them to articulate their approach to spirituality, their, their approach to religion, or what the, the basic tenets of their religion is he found some common themes, and they're not always put exactly this way, but these are called the, the basic tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism. This is really kind of the, the contours of how people generally approach spirituality and religion in the Western world. Here are kind of five principles. First is this. A God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. 
Five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, there's something of a duty that's wrapped up in all of those things. There's the expectation that people are to be good and nice and fair. And if there's any sense of judgment in those things, like will people ever be judged by this creator? It, you could make a case for that it, uh, towards the end there. It says good people go to heaven when they die. So in some sense, maybe there's a judgment being rendered whether or not people are good. But towering above that is really the central tenet to how generally people will approach spirituality or religion in the Western world. And that is the highest good of man, according to these principles, is that we are to be happy and to feel good about ourselves. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That means that really all of your life, all that you do every day should be oriented towards those two goals, to be happy and to feel good about oneself. If you're living, of course, according to these principles, which goes certainly against many of the things we find in Scripture. It's easy to see how, with these principles guiding your life, life quickly becomes not about standards of morality, not about what God requires of man, not about what God expects or requires of us, but rather how an individual person believes he or she can accomplish this happiness and these good feelings and achieve these good feelings. The point is that duty before God does not find much of a home in this system, and that is rooted in a failure to understand how we relate to God. And the preface to the Ten Commandments uh, reorders, reorients us in a proper way to remind us first of who God is, then of who we are. And if we begin there with who God is and who we are, we understand that we are not able to define life on our terms or according to our own pursuit of good feelings or happiness. And the great hope of this, of course, is that when we give ourselves to the things that God requires of us, when we order our lives around the fact that it is God's prerogative to give commands and to demand obedience, it is within this life that we find our highest good and our greatest joy. For God has joined these two things together. That is the great hope of biblical Christianity. That is the great hope of Christ-centered living, that God has joined together our highest good and our greatest joy. Where will we find satisfaction? Where will we find lasting joy and happiness? We will find them in God through Jesus Christ and in submission and obedience to Him through the gospel of grace. So we'll look at really two things tonight. The first is what it means for God to be the sovereign Lord. And then secondly, what it means for us to be the Lord's servant. So first, what it means to be the sovereign Lord. As we look at the, the preface to the Ten Commandments, it begins, God spoke all these words, uh, I am the Lord. And there we're talking about the covenant name of God, Yahweh. God revealed himself to his people as one who had this name, and this name reveals things about the nature of God. So we read in Exodus chapter 3, it says this, The Lord 
says to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent to you when you have brought the people out of, uh, of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses is worried that, How am I I going to prove to them that you're the one who has sent me, O God? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Bound up with the the name of God is his eternality and his unchanging nature. That his name and, and his names signify for us that who he is now, he has always been and he always will be. His name tells us and assures us, assures us of these truths. So the great Dutch theologian Herman Bovink says this in commenting on Exodus 3. It says, He will be what he was for the patriarchs, what he is now and will remain. He will be everything to and for his people. It is not a new and strange God who comes to them by Moses, but the God of the fathers, the unchangeable one, the faithful one, the eternally self-consistent one who never leaves or forsakes his people, but always again seeks out and saves his own. He is unchangeable in his grace, in his love, in his assistance, who will be what he is because he is always himself. So in Isaiah, he calls himself, I am he, the first and the last. So in the preface to the Ten Commandments, when God says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, it is a signal that God's word is true, that his promises will always be fulfilled, and that he never changes, and he never will change. He says to Moses, I am the Lord. In other words, I am the one who spoke to Abraham. The God who spoke to Abraham is the God who spoke to Moses. He was still with them then, and he is still with his people now. There's a a distinction that's being framed for us in Scripture as God is revealing himself to his people this way, as the one who never changes. Human beings, they change. They develop, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Hopefully, as those who know God and who have the Holy Spirit We are being changed for the better as it relates to God and to his word. I've mentioned this before. I feel bad for my wife. She's been married uh, over a decade now, but she's been married to five different men, uh, all called the same name with the same face. And I, I, I have undergone many changes in our married life. People change. Their preferences change. Their appearances change. Their, their likes and dislikes. Their character what they know and what they remember and what they prefer. 
But God never changes. And from the very first page of the Bible, what is given to us is the absolute transcendence of God. There is a distinction right from the beginning between the creator and the creature. That there are similarities that we have with God as we are ones who are His image. But there is nevertheless difference. There is a distinction that He is not like us. He is transcendent. He is eternal. He is holy. He is majestic. He is all-powerful. And all that God is stands in contrast to the reality and the realization of who and what we are. If God never changes, then how different we are from Him. And if He makes us by His power and sovereignty, does not He have the right to be our law giver? That first part, then, of the preface to the Ten Commandments ought to be a reminder to us that we must always rightly see ourselves before God. That He is the Creator, we are the creatures. And because of that, we must humble ourselves before this God. Absolute transcendence. I am the Lord. The next phrase, I am the Lord thy God. I am the Lord your God. You see, one of the wonderful things about Scripture is right next to the transcendence of God is His closeness to us. Uh, So theologians talk about transcendence and eminence. He is high above us, and yet He dwells close with us. Herman Bovink goes on to say, The same sublime and exalted God stands in intimate relationship with all His creatures, even the smallest. Immediately after the fall, God already comes to man. Man has sinned and is seized upon by shame and fear. He flees his creator and hides himself in the dense foliage of the garden. But God does not forget him. He does not let go of him, but condescends, seeks him out, talks with him, and leads him back to fellowship with himself. The idea here is to to hold both of these together. That God is the high and majestic one, and yet he dwells with a closeness to his people. And we understand this through the biblical concept of the covenant. What kind of God is he? He is a God who makes covenants with his people, who joins himself to us through uh, these glorious arrangements that he makes. And that brings us then to that next phrase, I am the Lord your God, so we have transcendence, we have closeness, and then I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt. You see, we can talk all that we want about our duty before God, about laws and commandments, about what God expects of us, about what we ought to do. We can talk about strategies for how to order our day so that we can uh, obey more of the commandments of God. We can talk about those things. We can emphasize them. And a pastor could talk till he is blue in the face. But these things will not come to life. It will not cut to the heart of a man or a woman until we begin to talk about these things in the context of redemption. Because without Redemption, without the life that God gives in and through His covenant of grace, in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, these things will not be opened up to us as living, as beautiful, as wonderful. And so even in the preface to the Ten Commandments, what do we have? We have 
the transcendence of God. We have the closeness of God. We have the redemption that God accomplishes for his people. Just the preaching of duty, of rules, will not do. We need something more. And that something more is the life that God gives through redemption. There's a story of a, of a great evangelical faithful minister out in the, uh, the motherland across the Atlantic. One day he was asked by a, a neighboring pastor uh, who said to him, uh, Mr. Venn, which is his, his name, I don't know how it is, but I should really think your doctrines of grace and faith are calculated to make all your hearers live in sin. He's saying, you know, you proclaim this gospel of grace and you tell people that, that God saves people by His grace and that He can forgive all of their sins and, and wipe them clean. And as I see it, the more that you proclaim that, the more I should expect your people to be disobedient. The more I should expect them to bend the rules and understand that they can get away with anything. He goes on, And yet, I must own that there is an astonishing reformation wrought in your parish. Whereas I don't believe I have ever made one soul the better, but I have been telling them their duty for many years. Been preaching rules and expectations and rules and rules and commandments. This minister smiled at the clergyman's honest confession, and he frankly told him, you would do well to burn all your old sermons and try what preaching Christ would do. We read in Psalm 19, how do you put this together? You have the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Uh, elsewhere we read, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. There, there's, in a sense, two different ways that the law can be um, presented to us in Scripture. That it convicts us of our sin... But yet, there is another perspective of the law that we read in, in Psalm 19. You read it all over Psalm 119. Almost every verse in Psalm 119 highlights this, that there is a, a life-giving quality to the law of God, to the commandments of God, that it gives life to us. It gives joy to us. How do we put all of this together? The, the law does not only kill, but the law without the life-giving work of God is what kills. Because without the attending grace of God to, to make us alive in the heart, to open our eyes to the beauty of these things, we will never be able to keep this law in a way which God will approve. We have the reminder again and again and again that we will not measure up to the standard of righteousness that God gives to us. But... When we see one who grants to us in his grace what we could not do on our own. When we see a righteous savior, a righteous law keeper who gives life. When we see a God who operates by his grace. When we see a, a God who gives this law to us in the shadow of his redemption. Which is already what he does in the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who has already saved you. I have brought you out of Egypt. I have brought you out of the house of bondage. He speaks his law in the shadow of redemption. When we see this one who grants to us in grace what we cannot do on our own, 
our relationship to the law changes. So Psalm 45, verse 7, a wonderful prophecy of Christ says this, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus was a righteous Savior. Jesus was a law keeper. And the life that he grants to us then... He grants to us his own life, and that must be a righteous life. That must be a a law-keeping life. That must be a life that is breathed into us that loves righteousness and hates wickedness. There are many uh, theologians who believe here in Psalm 45 this this oil of gladness is actually a reference to, to the Holy Spirit running down from Christ onto us, that there is this attending quality of Christ-likeness that the Holy Spirit brings to us, to all believers. And by it, what do we do? If we have the, the life of Christ given to us, what kind of people will we be? What kind of person was Jesus? He loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. If we are alive in, in him, then we will learn to do the same, to love righteousness and to hate wickedness. It all boils down to Are we alive spiritually? Have we been made alive in Christ? Are we resting in the obedience that he has already done for us? Romans 6 sets it up for us. You can be dead as it relates to Christ, and that means you are a slave to sin. You can be alive as it relates to Christ, and then you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are a slave of righteousness. Romans 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. It all begins with the gospel of grace. Gospel, you cannot... Obey God in any meritorious way on your own. And so God has given this Savior for us, this mediator who has kept the law on our behalf, who has come as that second Adam who has loved righteousness and hated wickedness, who defeated the devil and did not succumb to any of his temptations and went to the cross to bear our sins and to bear the wrath of God. And now he is exalted in heaven and we can trust in him and believe in him if we are to be saved. You see, what it means to be the sovereign Lord, the one who speaks in the preface to the Ten Commandments, is to be a transcendent God, is to be a close God in covenant, is to be a redeeming God who makes his people alive as it relates to all of these things. And when he makes them alive by his grace, their relationship to the law changes so that they may say, not that the letter merely kills, but... The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Because when we are hearing that law, we are hearing the law that is loved by the Savior who loved us. And then a couple of thoughts then as we close. What it means to be the Lord's servant. That's what it means to be the sovereign Lord. That's how we ought to hear the preface to the Ten Commandments when we read it as we often do in our worship services. What it means then to be the Lord's servant. The preface to the Ten Commandments situates situates us in this position. 
And we realize that we ought to have a special attention to this part of Scripture. The Ten Commandments has a great, uh, there's a great history to it and appreciation for it in Reformed churches. Because we realize now all words of Scripture are equally inspired and inerrant and infallible. We remember that. We affirm all of that as a church. And yet we read that God spoke in this time. And so we pay special close attention to these words. There's an enormous realization that goes with it. And some of the things that we remember as we think about them. So if God has spoken these words first, we must reverently hear them. And a lot of these things as we close tonight I've taken from Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity. But if God has spoken these words, we must reverently hear them. So Watson goes on to say this, Every word of the moral law is an oracle from heaven. God himself is the preacher, and that calls for reverence. If a judge gives a charge upon the bench, all attend it with reverence. In the moral law, God himself gives a charge. What veneration, therefore, with what veneration, therefore, should we attend them? Moses put off his shoes from his feet in token of reverence when God was about to speak to him. The point is that our posture towards the Ten Commandments as God's people ought not to be as sort of looking down and saying, well, you know, what do we think about this commandment or that commandment? We see it as, as coming from God himself who speaks to us as the righteous and sovereign lawgiver. We attend to it with reverence as we live underneath his law and not above it. Secondly, this, if God speaks these words, we must remember them. We must remember them. So Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. God does not speak these words to us so that they go in one ear and out the other. He expects that we would meditate on them. He expects that we would remember them. If God speaks these words, third, we must believe them. We must decide whether or not we will truly hold to all that we say that we believe about God. Do we believe that he is perfect? Do we believe that his ways are perfect and good and right and just and true? Do we believe that his precepts are right? If we do, then when God speaks these words, we accept them as having absolute and perfect authority. God knows better than we do what is good. God knows better than we do what is good for us. And thus, we receive these things as contours of our life that we must, by which we must live. If God speaks these words, we must love them. If God speaks these words, we must love them. What we just sang before the sermon. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 97. Watson says this, The moral law is the copy of God's will, our spiritual directory. It shows us what sins to avoid and what duties to pursue. The Ten Commandments are a chain of pearls to adorn us. They are our treasury to enrich us. 
They are more precious than lands of spices or rocks of diamonds. We are to love the law of God as we consider it relative to all of these things that we've spoken about. If God spoke all of these words, we must teach them to our children. Watson says this, Though you cannot impart grace to your children, you may impart knowledge. Let your children know the commandments of God. Deuteronomy 11, you shall teach them to your children. You are careful to leave your children a portion of your riches. Leave with them also the oracles of heaven. Instruct them in the law of God. If God spoke all these words, you may well speak them over and over again to your children. Then lastly, if God speaks these words, we must obey them. We must obey them. How do we consider uh, obedience as it relates to our spiritual life lived before God? As we mentioned, there is no merit that we can achieve before this God where he would look upon us and say, okay, you deserve eternal life. That's never going to happen. But being reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, as Romans 5 says, we have now been welcomed into this grace in which we stand. We, we stand in grace. And you can read all of the New Testament epistles, especially where the Apostle Paul talks very clearly that what his desire is for God's people is that they would give themselves in sincerity of faith to obedience and zeal for good works. And if that is done in sincerity of faith, then God is pleased to accept them not as merit, not as something that's going to grant to us eternal life, but something that pleases and honors God as his people. As his people, that is what we are called to do. To seek to honor and live for God in sincerity of faith, in genuineness of devotion. It's never going to be obedience that merits for ourselves eternal life or salvation. But we hear the law of God. We understand that we're never going to be perfect in our obedience. We understand that because we trust in Christ, that's never going to be the test of our salvation. And yet being made alive in Christ, we can then look at the commands of God and understand and say with a joy resounding in our heart, Oh, how I love your law. The precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the instructions of the Lord, all of them give life to my soul because they remind me of the grace of God. They remind me of the redemption that he has given to me in Christ. They remind me that I have been made alive in my Savior and my Mediator. And because of that, I understand that even when I fail, even when I fall short, I look up to the perfect obedience, to the perfect righteousness of Christ, the one who loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And I understand and trust and hope for pardon through his blood. See, that is, that's gospel obedience. That we would never look to our own works and say, this is what I'm going to, this is going to be uh, my plea on judgment day. This is going to be what I bring before God. And nothing in our hands I bring, simply to the cross we cling. And yet we understand that God calls us to these things, to obey in sincerity of faith and genuineness of devotion. And made alive in Jesus Christ, God changes 
our relationship to the law, and he changes, uh, and it changes then the way that God looks upon his children who are seeking to honor him from faith in grace because of what Christ has done in making us alive in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of instruction and encouragement as we think about the way that you open your law to us in the preface to the Ten Commandments. You are the Lord. You are our God. You brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so we thank you for the redemption that you have given to us. And we pray, O Lord, that in sincerity of faith and genuineness of devotion, we would give ourselves an obedience, knowing and understanding that it's only by the Spirit, it's only by the merits of Christ, uh, that we can continue in this way and you would look upon us uh, with any satisfaction and accept what we do. But we pray for Christ's sake you would do so. We thank you and praise you in his name. Amen. We stand together. And-